Hi folks, welcome to Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. I'm John by Bo, and today we're doing part three of our Edward the uh, First series, where uh, Edward has defeated. Well, yeah, no, he did defeat William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. They're loose somewhere in Scotland, and uh, well, I mean, there's only one thing for Edward to do, and let's go get them. Mm. Yeah, so nothing is over. Um, you might have thought uh, a few times during this story that. It could, it should have come to some sort of political agreement, something no. like that. Someone, either the English should have given up after their defeats, or the Scots should give up after their defeats. But no, both it's fairly intractable. Both sides are just not prepared to stop. So we're in about the year thirteen hundred, and there's still another six, seven odd years to go, mm. and they're fairly action-packed. Yeah, nothing is over. Nothing stops. Um, so if I start just by picking up the story again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Mark Morris writes of this period that Scotland itself had become a land of confusion. Defeat at Falkirk had severely dented the credibility of William Wallace and obliged him to stand down as his country's sole guardian. So that was the thing for a while there, just in lieu of anyone else. Yeah. Wallace was, yeah, some sort of de facto leader. During a kind of interregnum, he's basically taken on the mantle of a kind of Lord Protector. Something like that, yeah. Because yeah. they've certainly got no king, that's what this yeah. is all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce is sort of bested or out of the picture a bit. Um, he's, he's not able to rally, hmm. sort of in a legitimate grassroots type way, rally a, a party or a faction around himself, but Wallace had done before Falkirk anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, until Falkirk. Um, well, Wallace is the only person who could say, well, I've got a demonstrable record of defeating the English. Yeah, I think it's, I think you can, it's fair to say he's only sort of uh, a, de a de facto type leadership, yeah, yeah, nothing formal whatsoever. Uh, but again, just when there's a power vacuum, hmm. kind of anyone can step into it in a sense, right? Yep. Uh, we see that in history all the time. Um, think back perhaps of the Russian Revolution, get a bunch of Bolsheviks, i.e. nobodies. Yeah. <laughs> step into the step into the power vacuum because, yeah. well, that, that's why I think anarchy... well, worse than nobodies actually scum. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. if it was just a bunch of nobodies, that implies sort of like you know Matilda who runs the village council, <laughs> and a sewing circle. You know, like nobody's could be quite quite pleasant, mm. but no, no, a bunch of actual criminals mm. and mm. aliens and, you know, uh, generally demented people. That's why I sort of fear and loathe anarchy. Yeah, I don't want to. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, like the, the capitalist form of anarchy is different to the communist form of anarchy, but nonetheless, when there's just no law and order, I'm not sure there is a capitalist form of anarchy, to be honest. Capitalism is predicated and on the protection. Yeah, it's not real. It's pre it's pre capitalism is predicated on the protection of private property, which requires some form of law and order. So, I'd be inclined to agree with you. I, I wonder if you'd argue with uh, our ex-employee Hugo and Michael Malice about that. I absolutely would, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're not here to defend themselves. So, yeah. let me go on now. Yeah. No, I don't like Michael Mattis. Um, Michael Mattis is a fun guy. I like but I guess he's not to everyone's taste. Yeah, don't trust him. Don't trust him as far as I could throw <laughs> the man. 
I'm not going to lend him money. <laughs> Mark Murray, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Mark Morris goes on. Leadership of the Scottish political community had now passed to two, uh, two other young men, both in their 20s. One of them, as might be expected, was Robert Bruce. That is the grandson of the three Bruces, the youngest yeah. one, the one you sort of see depicted in the film Braveheart, um, whose importance to the patriotic cause had received indirect acknowledgement from English efforts to apprehend him the previous year. So he'd already been on the run for a while. Mm. And you know what it's like, perhaps in the Wild West or something, or John Dillinger or someone, whenever there's, you, you know, there's a price on your head, that makes you more famous, if anything. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, was it the Streisand effect? But most yeah. people never heard of you, and now, yeah, now everyone wants you because you're worth something. I mean, right. they're literally telling everyone that you're valuable. Yeah, yeah, and that's what helps, or helps is not quite the right word, but that's what causes lots of people to search for mm. Robert Bruce, just because there is a, an actual, pr an actual mm. prize to be had. Um, Mark Morris goes on, uh, the other out of these two important figures. The other was John Comyn, the son and heir of the man of the same name who had backed John Balliol during the Great Calls. That was the original, the original it's called the Great Calls, was that original yeah, yeah. decision between Balliol and Bruce, uh, which for the record made him Balliol's nephew. So I think to mention about this John Comyn, because he sort of comes into it, so the Red Comyn is often called. Um, he was sort of married into the Balliol side and... Um, so he becomes important. I actually probably won't go into his life and story all that much, uh, but just need to know that he is kind of Bruce's main political rival after Wallace is out of the picture. Because with Wallace, like I said, he might have been some sort of de facto ruler in inverted commas, leader, let's say, not ruler, leader. Mm. Uh, but after Falkirk, his, his position politically sort of completely collapses. Well, his claim to legitimacy is, I can defeat the English. Yeah, right, yeah. I have an army and I can defeat the English. Okay, mm. but now you don't have an army and you can't. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No wonder your claim to legitimacy collapses. Of course, from the Scottish side, William Wallace is one of their favourites, isn't, isn't he? Well, but, yeah, because of Braveheart. Right, yeah. I wonder how many people had ever heard of William Wallace no. before that film came out. None. Very few. Yeah. But from our side, it's like, you got lucky at Stirling Bridge one time. We dropped the ball at Stirling Bridge one time. Yeah. We kicked ourselves <laughs> in the face. We were like, yeah! <laughs> okay, great, well done. Mark Moore says, Authority among the Scots, in other words, had passed to a new generation, but was split between the representatives of two uh, traditionally hostile factions. So it's sort of back to the same old, same old in yeah. a way. Uh, Bruce, the Bruce and Balliol faction. John Comyn isn't sort of a true Balliol, but he's, he's their whole party, the their whole faction just attach themselves to him. So if you remember, the the John Balliol himself had been captured and sent south, and yeah, yeah, he's in suffering and though. exiled. He's just uh, politically anyway, completely out of the picture, never comes back. So okay, so in Edward's mind, um, <clears throat> he he he's he has decided. Mm that he's going to sort of go all in, if you like. Um, you know, because he could decide if he wanted to, because he holds most of the cards, yeah. militarily, politically. If he wanted to, he probably could have just sort of backed away slowly from the whole Scottish question, sort of, you know, try to make a truce. I mean, maybe even install a king. 
there's all sorts of yeah. avenues he could have gone down. Yeah. Only one of which is I'm going to keep smashing you in battles until until it's done, until we're finished. But that's what he chooses to do. I mean, um, like I say, he's a crusader. He fought battles when he was yeah. a young man. Uh, he's very sort of warlike. He's very martial. What does the average Plantagenet king do when faced with this question? When yeah. he invades. Yeah. Uh, but we have also said, haven't we, in the previous episode or two, that sometimes, you know, he does make the political decision a few times, like in the immediate aftermath of the de Montfort mm. win, he sort of decides to, that discretion is the better part of valour and that he'll play the political game rather than just trying to imprison murder and have battles and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. A um, bit later in this story, we're going to talk again about Parliament at least in passing, you know, he decides, you know, he's not just going to crush them all on things. He's not just going to dissolve parliaments and, and, and things like that. He's actually going to play the game and concede things yeah. in, his, um, in his career on the continent. Quite often he's a conciliator mm. and he, will, he won't just go down the route <coughs> of, of it's my way or the highway and you're <coughs> going to get an iron fist if you even dare yeah, raise yeah, an he, eyebrow. He's, he's not a tyrant, um, right. but he's not weak. And mm. I guess the Scots invading and ravaging northern England was just too much. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be a price paid for it. Because they go on to do that again, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things I think you, everyone's had it in their life. At some point, if something's happening and um, it's just a line in the sand has been mm. crossed. You know, there's just a red line for you. And from that point on, it's just implacable resistance to something, someone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, in his mind, in Longshanks' mind, a couple of years back, yeah, when they, uh, well, definitely by the time they, Wallace ravished into Northern England, I think before that even, in his mind, it was like, no, I'm doing this to the bitter end. If it costs me everything, I'm not giving in. So, Possibly Stirling Bridge, not yeah. having a humiliating defeat on my conscience. Yeah, right. I mean, he wasn't there, it wasn't his, but... Still. Can you imagine him getting the news of Stirling Bridge? It's like already quite a few years into the whole saga. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, just, I just imagine a kind of black look descends on his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, yeah. you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just the dead eyes. Yeah. <laughs> People are going to get killed <laughs> on the back of this. Um, okay, so Mike Morris goes on. Edward intended to pick up in Scotland precisely where he'd left off the previous year. According to Walter of Giesborough, the king set out in November 1299, quote, wishing to break the Scottish siege of Stirling Castle. Remarkably, the great fortress, so crucial to controlling the Northern Kingdom, was still in English hands, despite a whole year of enemy assaults. That's another thing that typifies these later Scottish campaigns of Longshanks, is that instead of going up into Scotland for the campaigning season, i.e. Mm. the nice months, summer months and things, and coming back down again and licking your wounds and trying to recoup over winter. He just stays in Scotland. He makes the calculation, he does it more than once, he makes the calculation that, no, actually, campaigning or fighting in the winter is just as tough for them as it is for me. Yeah. And if it's possible for me to sort of just sit in their territory, mm. Sort of, even if all the land around Stirling Castle, for example, is kind of held by the Scots, it's a big thorn in their side if I just sit here all winter. Especially, um, I mean, if you've taken the castles, 
You may as well occupy them. Right, yeah. To have to retake them yeah, exactly. every year is just, yeah, it's, that's not economical or efficient. Yeah, right. so it's a waste of time. What were you bothering for? Yeah. There's that thing in, in all sorts of strategy games or chess mm. or lemmings. If you just think, <laughs> what, you know, you think, what is going to be most annoying to my enemy? Not necessarily what costs me the most or how much it damages me, but just if I was in my enemy's shoes, what would be the one thing that would screw me over the most? Whatever that is, let's do that. Hmm. So he's thinking, Edward's thinking, what would be most frustrating and annoying to the Scots would be if I just sit in Stirling Castle all winter. Um, I mean, it is the key location. And the worry is, is that they will, you know, sort of besiege it, or they, because yeah. then his whole position would be screwed. Yeah. Um, so it is a big gamble. I mean, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. The Scots could raise a large army and then yeah. trap him in this castle. And sieges can go on for years and do. And we mentioned in the last one, didn't we, that it was the first, the first sort of inklings of the, the Elder Alliance, i.e. Scotland mm. and France clubbing together. Mm. And the Scots and the French, or at this juncture, we're not at peace with France. No. Uh, at this juncture, he gets intelligence or actual formal word from the Scottish and the French saying that the French are going to send over an army and relieve Stirling and just be a thorn in Edward's side. And, you know, there's always the possibility they'll just send a flotilla over the channel yeah. and they'll, they'll sail up the Thames or something or they'll harry the south coast. Now, if they had done that, that would have been a massive problem for Edward. But he basically calls their bluff. Um, he basically says, if you're going to do that, do it. Let's mm. see what happens. And it would have been really bad for Edward if they had. Yeah, yeah. But the long and short of that, and the story of that is actually quite involved and in-depth, and there's lots of diplomacy and politics back and forth. But in the end, the French don't send anyone over. So Longshanks called their bluff there, mm. and they folded on that one. I mean, one. it is a big and expensive endeavour. No. Right. He was probably just right. thinking, you're not going to do it. And another thing to say, just to mention, is that there is all sorts of conflicts going on in Europe, in France, mm. uh, is the backdrop to all of this, on and off. Mm. Um, and the Pope, also at this stage, uh, the Pope's not happy with Longshanks, so he sort of formally uh, backs the Scots. Mm. Um, yeah, says that he, uh, he's sort of on their side and that Edward's not acting sort of legally or, you know, um, God is displeased with Longshanks at this moment, according to Rome. Yeah, if that were the case, why do I keep winning? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so over that winter, Edward is at a, 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 a weak point hmm. he know he knows that if he does want to do a full-scale campaign and war the next year he's going to need fresh men fresh levies fr fresh army sort of more or less or at least just reinforcements um and he's going to need money for that um but his parliament yeah well i'm sure they're not <coughs> thrilled about the idea his parliament as we said before they'd already done this before they realize they're no fools they're not hmm. suckers they realize that he's a, a sort of a weak juncture politically so, so they use this moment as leverage 
he really needs them to stump up money in men. Hmm. And they're like, well, no, how about no, actually? Because for years and years and years, or your whole reign, essentially, you've promised to do stuff and you never do it. You've promised to abide by all sorts of rules, like multiple times you've done this, hmm. and then you don't. So, no, we're really not going to give you all the money you want and, and therefore loads of men hmm. to pay for loads of men. So <laughs> he wanted, he sort of ordered enough money to pay for something in the order of 16,000 men and only two and a half thousand show up. Yeah. Mark Morris calls this on behalf of the parliament, quote, a deliberate political boycott. Undoubtedly. Yeah. They're just like, no, you've, you've, uh, you've essentially betrayed us year after year after year, time after time after time. Um, so, no, we're not going to do what you want. You're not going to get it. You've got to treat us seriously. Mm. got to treat your, your oath seriously. Um, so, I mean, later in that year, um, well, in the end, Edward, in the following year, Edward does leave Stirling Castle because he can't stay there forever. No. He realises that okay, I haven't got the 16,000 men I want or need. I can't just stay here year after year, just by letter begging Parliament. What if Parliament never gives in? Mm. Eventually, I've, I'll be starved out or just by attrition, I'm going to leave. So he leaves. And uh, the Scots do f finally uh, retake Stirling Castle. Which means most of the work has to be redone again, right? So the next year, he does actually managed to get enough men together just through sort of a, a sheer force of will, uh, a bullying, cajoling, uh, making promises, all this kind of thing. But, yeah. it, but it's still sort of scraping together relatively small numbers. You remember one, I think the first big campaign in Scotland, he got something like 60,000 men, even though we think that's an exaggeration. Still, he did get together a giant host. Bigger than any army he ever sent into Wales, which yeah. themselves was thought of as really big for the late 13th century. So now he's sort of cobbling together, scraping together what he can. Mark Morris says, um, Nevertheless, the king's 10,000 strong host looked impressive enough when it set out from Carlisle in early July. A poet in their midst captured something of the splendour of the scene. The colourful banners, the beautiful pennons hanging from the knight's lances, the horses richly caparisoned with embroidered silks and satins. Looking behind him, he saw that, quote, mountains and valleys were everywhere covered with sumpter horses and wagons with provisions and the train of tents and pavilions. The days, he added, were fine and long. Um, it's nice when you get an actual... Yeah. Of description like that. <clears throat> one, one thing I always hate about Hollywood is the portrayal of medieval war and people as being very brown. Everything's brown. Or dirty. Not necessarily, even if it's not dirty, it's still brown. Everything's brown. It's oh, like, right. why is everything brown? They had dye. Mm. And they used it a lot. They mm. loved dye. Mm. They loved really bright, garish colours. It's like with the ancient world, where everything's white. It's like, no, no, that was all garish as well, actually. Mm. The history was actually a lot more colourful than you're giving it credit for. <laughs> uh, un unpleasantly so, at times, actually. <laughs> yeah. Particularly um, sort of the knightly order, or in yeah. other words, rich people. Yeah. I think normal people 
when, when they, still been dyed, all that... they still had dyed clothes. I mean, you know, think of like Robin Hood and all his men had Lincoln green. You right. It's quite a bright shade of green. You <laughs> had to have dyed it. You know, they still had dyes. Like one thing I think is perhaps the brightness. You know, like we might have something that's sort of electric blue. Hmm. Not not so much. Or um, hmm. or something that was purple would be very expensive. Sure. Or it's yeah, something that's like a bright red, like a bright cherry red. You wouldn't have seen that all that often. But yeah, nonetheless, certainly people with money hmm. um, wouldn't just have been all in brown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, even the peasants, I'm sure they'd have like one, like you know, red coat or something that they'd they'd have that was a you know prized possession or something like that. You know, that was handed down from your dad or something. You know, like like they just were <laughs> they were just in in sackcloth. The whole time, which is basically the implication. There's another thing people talk about it. Historians on Twitter, sort of a thing to argue about on mm. Twitter accounts. Quite how dirty people were, because um, in some, um, like you know, movies and TV, yeah. they always show everyone was sort of covered in mud, non non-stop. They say, why? Yeah. Why wouldn't they wash? Mm. Why wouldn't they have some self-respect? Yeah. Um, like you, there's one thing to be a bit unwashed. There's another to actually be smeared in mud. <laughs> yeah, constantly. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't have yeah. just your face smeared in mud. Yeah, yeah. Or, your, right. or just your clothes. I mean, like your clothes just wouldn't be covered in mud or something. You wash them. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. So in this campaign, um, it doesn't go all that well. I mean, the Scots retake Dumfries and Galloway. Um, so where Edward had, had hoped that maybe he could on this shoestring, you know, it all looks very optimistic at first, where, you know, mm -hmm. that account where they're marching in and everyone, all the knights look in good order. Um, it doesn't actually come to much because where he needs, <clears throat> where he needs, sort of you might have guessed, he needs more reinforcements and they don't come. Yeah. Um, there's a, a parliament around this time that's held at Lincoln called imaginatively the Lincoln parliament. Um, things come to a head. Um, there's one thing to mention that we think of all parliaments every time without fail being in Westminster Palace, yeah. i.e. in the House of Commons in Westminster. Well, that's just not the way it used to be at all. It could just be held wherever, wherever the king wanted it to be, sometimes in really small little towns and things. Well, that's because these aren't uh, elected politicians that persistently right. have a paid job. These people are the nobles, burghers and knights of various feudal places uh, the, the various like shires and counties of england so mm. they are assembled irregularly and so they could be assembled anywhere mm. it's literally that simple and were you know like for example hundreds and hundreds of years after this during the english civil war between the stuart kings and mm. parliament um like the king will just be riding through a town decide he wants to call a parliament and just calls a parliament there mm. um so yeah it's the way it was um, people have said, well, Mike Morris says that that Lincoln Parliament is is the lowest point of his political fortunes. It's where his own barons and magnates, and there's a number of times during his reign when this has yeah, happened, yeah. it's where they, they can really sort of press their foot on his neck. Hmm. Again, politically, not physically. Um, and I haven't really stressed this enough, but quite a few times, more than once during Edward's reign, um, his, he comes very, very close to his own guys, his magnates, his barons, mm. sort of 
going into some kind of full revolt against him. And he sort of just about gets away with it a number of times. Um, a, few, a few times because of Scotland. Yeah. They're like, they're just about to really kind of raise arms against them, start a civil war. And then the Scots invade and they decide, mm. they all fall back in line. We're like, okay, we'll put that on the back burner for now because we've been invaded by Scotland. I think it's important to remember that the, the war that Edward's waging against Scotland is a personal war. Well, this isn't a national war. The English aren't like, oh, we have to defeat the Scots. The English baronage have got no interest in defeating the Scots, it seems. It's Edward who started the war and is continuing the war at his own detriment. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think you're right, other than to say that the northern earls... Oh, I'm sure they were pissed off at the Scots right. after being ravaged. But, like, but that's the point. Okay, then it's personal. You know, why? Why? Because a bunch of Scots invaded and raped a, you know, women <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, okay, I can see why you're pissed off about it. But, like, you know, why, why is some guy in Devon bothered about this? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. He's got no interest in fighting this war. You know, he, it, it's not gripped by national sentiment, as it comes to be after Braveheart. Mm. You know, it's not a national issue, mm. you know. But mm. um, anyway. Now, where that's one of the lowest ebbs for Edward, mm. um, things start to turn around a bit, in turn, uh, politically and financially. So he'd had problems with the Pope and Rome for a while, mainly over money, whether the Pope was allowed to um, sort of levy fairly big taxes. Many such cases. Right. Um, so in, at, this, at this stage, um, things get, a few things change on the continent. Um, um, the, the whole scene in Sicily changes. Mm. Um, Edward's relationship with France uh, changes, some of the pressure is released. Uh, they're able to strike a, a kind of a peace deal, or at least a truce. And anyway, basically, for a number of different reasons, Edward's able to kind of patch up his relationship with the Pope to the point where Edward allows the Pope to, keep, uh, to start levying taxes again in England. Now you might think, how is that in his favour? Well, it might be, it might cost him money in the short term, but what it does mean is the Pope uh, withdraws his support for the Scots. Yeah. And as you can imagine, it gives it to England, or at least tacitly. Um, so he might have lost a bit financially, but he's won, won as a political win though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or even a religious or spiritual win. I mean, having the church on side, or not mm. as an implacable enemy in your own country, very useful thing. It's a major institution. Right. Yeah. You know, it's got huge influence over civil society. To have this to be not against you just greases the wheels of getting things done. It's definitely a good way of putting it. Sort of civil society. Um, yeah, or just like the common man. Yeah. Um, he would rather the Pope's on your side. Yeah. Or, or, it's not just the Pope because it's the 13th century. It's God. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, it's not just the Pope, but right, you know, but it's, it's also like, it's like, uh, it's like a circulatory system, you know, you've got the, the Pope, which is the heart pumping the blood, but then you've got major arteries, which are like, you know, the Archbishop and all of these other high, you know, church offices, but then it goes down into capillaries into like local bishops, mm. 
you know, priests who are of, of villages of like 200 people. Mm. You know, it all flows down into this sort of like extended capillary network, which is just across the entire country. So everything is touched by the church. So like to mm. have that mm. as an enemy is just a nightmare. Mm. Yeah. So that's the thing to remember about it. Because I mean, in the modern day, we don't think about it at all. So, Church. I don't care about the church. Mm. Why would that? Be, why would that be something? You know, like I've never been to a church. You know, something like that. But no, every, everyone went to the church. The church is like a, a hub of social, spiritual, and um, just practical life as well. Mm. You know, the church that you know gives alms. It, it undoubtedly does a lot of um, medicine. Uh, <laughs> it takes care of the sick, all that sort of thing. And so it's it's just a really major part of civic life. Yeah, no, definitely. In the 13th century, all, I can't even call them institutions really, but what we would, might think of sort of state institutions, it's mm. all done by the church. Yeah. Um, your whole civic life revolves around the church. Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, like today, the Catholic church plays no role in my life and most people's lives. If you're not Catholic, you don't actively want to go to Catholic Mass. No. Then you have no connection to the Catholic Church. Yeah, they, they've got no power to invade your life. Right. Yeah. But back then, it was a whole different... So, so it's a massive yeah. deal whether the, the Pope is on board with, with your sort of national projects or not. Yeah. It actually really, really matters. Yeah. Um, okay. So where Edward had to sort of retreat and lick his wounds after sort of being rebuffed by Parliament, um, suddenly the wheel of fortune has turned a bit. Um, and with the, the Pope on side and things settled, at least in a sense, in France for a while. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.